2: Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect.
3: Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect.
4: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Carolyn. And this is part two of our two-parter on women in comics and cartooning. Because A, it would be really challenging to fit everything about the history and current status of women in cartooning into one podcast. But B, because when we mentioned that we were going to do this topic... We got so much positive feedback mm-hmm. from Stuff Mom Never Told You fans. So I think that people wanted, perhaps, a two-parter on this. I think they did, too. Because I mean one would not be enough, considering when we asked on Twitter, at Mom Stuff Podcast, and on Facebook for people's favorite lady cartoonists and comic book artists, we received so many names, and should should I read a few, Carolyn? Yeah, let's let's hit some. Well, uh, one of the favorites that was mentioned a lot: Noel Stevenson, Fiona Staples, Kate Beaton, of course, from Hark a Vagrant; uh, Gail Simone from Birds of Prey, from the comic book world. We also had Linda Berry, Roz Chast, Katie Cook, Emma Rios, Emily Carroll, and on and on and on, including. Sarah C. Anderson.
0: Yeah, Sarah C. Anderson, who sent us a fabulously sweet letter saying that she had listened to our Our Women Funny episode and appreciated that we confirmed that, yes, shockingly, women are funny. Uh, and then she said, Have you considered doing an episode on women in comics and cartooning? And I was able to fire off an email and tell her, uh, Sarah... We are doing a two-parter. And yeah, she not only um, piped up when we put it out there on social media about, like, who are your favorite cartoonists, but she also was someone that came recommended. And with her letter to us, she included uh, copies of her comics, and they are Hilarious and adorable, and as I told Sarah in her, in the email to her, I've actually seen your comics before online. Like I have chuckled to myself about her uh, strip about wanting to stay in her in your pajamas. I can fully identify with that, as well as the one about uh, not being able to pronounce words because you are a bookworm and you've only read them, so you don't know how to say them. Oh, it's happened to me too. It's embarrassing. <laughs> it is embarrassing. It's happened to me on this podcast, but I comfort myself. With
4: knowing that, well, at least I I knew the word. Yeah, you knew what it meant. Yeah, yeah, just didn't know how to say it. Uh, but considering though, all of the names and. Honestly, those were just a handful of the dozens and dozens and dozens of names that we got. And we're compiling all of them into a post at StuffMomNeverToldYou.com so we can all share and find new amazing comics and artists. Um, But it seems like, based on this, it's a great time to be a woman in cartooning or illustrating or comics. We're kind of blending all of them together for the purpose of simplicity in this podcast two-parter. And we received a number of cartoonists, illustrators, and comic book artists. Um, and it seems like it's a great time because there are all of these women making all of these hilarious and beautiful and insightful and poignant pieces of work and getting some high-level recognition for it.
0: Yeah, like Alison Bechdel, for instance. She created Dykes to Watch Out For and Fun Home. She received a MacArthur grant in 2014. And of course, Bechdel, you should recognize her name from the Bechdel test, which Kristen and I talked about. It's basically the test that you can put to movies to say, are there at least two women characters who talk to each other about something other than men?
4: Yeah, and you would be surprised how few films Pass that test and uh, I actually read Fun Home after we did that podcast on Bechdel and if you haven't read it it's a fantastic graphic novel that's actually been turned into a musical now as well and I have a feeling it's been optioned for a film too um, but it's great and you should read it and revel in her incredible storytelling
0: through Troll Ring's Drawings. Well, also in 2014, Jen Sorensen became the first woman to ever win the herblock Prize for political cartooning. And we talked a little bit about women in political
4: and editorial cartoons in part one, really just focusing in on
0: suffrage cartoons in the early 20th century. And also in the past couple of years in the mainstream comic book industry, there's been a lot of talk and action regarding Women and comics, because one of the giant things that happened is that Marvel writer Jason Aaron received a lot of praise and a lot of hate for making Thor a woman. And this is not like creating a new god or goddess, this is making the character of Thor. A woman instead of a man now. And this is following on the heels of the 2013 debut of the
4: new Ms. Marvel, now a Pakistani teenager, Kamala Khan. And while all this is going on, you have industry women like Kelly Sue DeConnick, who is a writer, not an artist, but was one of the women uh, called out by Stuff Mom Never Told You fans. Um, She retooled female Captain Marvel to be stronger and more heroic rather than just set dressing and the has also been really leading the charge to address gender dynamics within the industry at large. So, there's a lot of conversation, a lot of calling out of perhaps uh systemic sexism happening, um examinations of the depiction of female characters in comic books. So, this is definitely an important time
0: for gender in comics and cartoons. Yeah, because, I mean, the creators of Miss Marvel themselves were shocked at just how popular, just how strong the response to her was. Um, and, for instance, Thor, I mean, if we're talking about how common main women characters are, Thor is just the eighth Marvel title to feature a lead female protagonist. So, small strides.
4: Yeah, and I mean, small strides indeed, because nonetheless, the capital C comics industry and its audience does remain overwhelmingly male dominated. And, um, Walt Hickey over at the 538 blog did a, a really detailed statistical analysis of this and found that as of August 2014, men outnumber women nine to one behind the scenes at both DC and Marvel. And about 79% of the people working on comics in the past year were also white. So not only is there little gender diversity, there's also little
0: racial diversity as well. And as we sort of touched on in our part one episode, the more people that you bring into a medium, the more different types of people you bring in, the more perspectives you're going to get. And so obviously that's going to be a theme of our discussion, but uh, Tim Hanley, who's a comic historian And researcher noted that women at DC and Marvel make up only 15% of colorists and nearly no letterers, he said. uh, Female writers and artists are sporadic at best, and there are more female editors, 22.4% and assistant editors, 40.8%, but still lacking in the artist and colorist area.
4: Yeah, I mean, in those, those percentages of the editors and assistant editors are up since the 90s. Um, but for DC and Marvel, female characters who recur at least 10 times make up only 30.9% of the DC universe and 30.6% of the Marvel universe. And so that's one of the reasons why, like you said, I mean, you bring n- a greater diversity of people to the table. Chances are you're going to get a greater diversity of people on the page. But we are really focusing, though, on those people at the table, not so much on the characters on the page and moving away from comic books for a moment and into Newspapers, because yes, cartoons still exist in newspapers. And yes, newspapers <laughs> also still exist. Um, but it's hard to find a woman cartoonist at a newspaper. Um, New Yorker cartoonist and cartoonist historian Liza Donnelly estimates that there are only two women editorial and political cartoonists drawing from major newspapers.
0: And at the New Yorker, for instance, only eight out of the more than 50 cartoonists are women. Yeah, um, and we went over to the National Cartoonist Society's
4: webpage to try to do a, a gender count over there, and the National Cartoonist Society got a mention in part one of our comic series talking about how it launched in 1946, but was only open to men for the first year until women and some men came to their defense being like, hey, maybe we should open up our doors. And... As I was going through the website uh, looking for numbers, I ended up on their history page. And, Caroline, it was just so telling looking at photos from their history. And it's so hard to find a woman. I mean, obviously, in the very early years, it's all men mm-hmm. in the photos. Um, so looking at numbers today, I counted up 49 women out of more than 600 members so and that's including women like, say, Kathy Geiswhite, mm-hmm. who created the Kathy comic that we actually talked about in a podcast a couple of summers ago. So just for established cartoonists and comic book artists out there still, it's it is overwhelmingly male dominated. But that's not to say that women aren't invested in comics.
0: Right. I mean, you know, as again, as we talked about in our first episode on this, Women and girls have been interested in comics and cartoons since the very beginning. It's only sort of around World War II that it became not so cool for girls to be sort of involved, whether in the industry itself or in the actual consumption of comics and cartoons. And so a recent Facebook data survey found that 46% of self-identified comics fans are women. Now, when I saw that 46%, statistic, I wondered whether
4: some people, say, like, comics diehards, the fans who really consider themselves fans who buy the two issues, one so that it can remain in its plastic sleeve and the other that they can actually read, whether they might sneer a little bit at that percentage in the same way that similar percentages about women in gaming are often sneered at because, oh, well, those women are just playing Candy Crush. They aren't, you know, up all night on Xbox Live. Because I have a feeling based on the kinds of names that we were getting from stuff I'm never told you fans about their favorite women comic artists and comic strips, a lot of them are digital. They're web comics mm-hmm. and digital has really changed the current comics game. Not to say that there, there weren't also plenty of more traditional comic book artists that were called out as well. Um, but that's one thing that we're going to talk about later on in the show is about how digital has, I think, in a really positive way, not only opened up comic creation to more people, but also perhaps opened up readership and appreciation and consumption of comic books to women in a way that we haven't seen in previous decades. Mm-hmm. But before we get into all of that, Caroline, we gotta take a quick break and then we'll come right back.
0: Can I rant for a sec? Please. Podcast. You know, we cited a lot of really interesting things that are happening with women and comics and cartoons today, but we also have to revisit how we got here. And a lot of our information is coming from two great places. One, Where Are the Working Women in Comics by Vanetta Rogers, which was featured on Arama. New- and two, Wesley Chenault's thesis, Working the Margins, Women in the Comic Book Industry. And so... Where we are today has a lot to do with the comics code of the late 1950s, whose censorship discouraged a lot of the material that used to attract a lot of female readers. And on top of that, it often
4: sanitized female characters An overly emphasized G-rated romance. I mean, before the Comics Code, women were really getting into some of the racier, the darker kinds of comics that uh, Frederick Wortham and Seduction of the Innocent was out to ban. Mm -hmm. Now, on top of that, as we move into the seventies and eighties, comic book sales move away from the newsstand and you have the growth of direct market system sales. And so with that, you have the rise of comic book stores and these spaces really become, I mean, we can all probably summon up the stereotype of the comic book store. It's kind of like the stereotype of the record store where it's mostly guys who are going to challenge you on how much you really know, especially if you are A girl walking into those spaces and for a lot of girls and women who otherwise would be fans of comics and would pick one up at the newsstand felt alienated from walking into a comic book store.
0: Right. Trina Robbins, who we cited a lot in the first episode, who's a cartoonist and a cartoonist historian, in an interview with Collectors Weekly, she talked about this evolution of things moving out of, moving away from the newsstand and into these comic book stores. She said that they were awful, that women didn't want to go into these spaces because they were, quote, like porn stores. Yeah. I mean, I remember experiencing
4: the same kind of thing. In high school, when I started to get interested in graphic novels, more so than um, traditional comic books. And there was this fantastic comic store downtown where I grew up. And I wouldn't go in there, though, without a friend because I was too nervous to talk to the cashier or to ask any questions at all, because it was very much like if if I would I, I I mean, I would pick, try to pick out the right T-shirt to wear just to give <laughs> myself a little outside cred. And I, I mean, it was it was an intense kind of thing. So that definitely rang true in my experience. But if we go back, though, to the 60s and 70s, it is interesting to see how with Marvel and DC both attempted to provide more diversity on the page, they did feature a few more black and female characters. For instance, in 1975, we have the debut of Storm in X-Men, and that was the first major black heroine, and that was uh,
0: under Marvel. And then, you know, in our first episode, we talked about how Marvel and DC already weren't that great in terms of employing women. They lagged behind their contemporaries, most of whom ended up getting wiped out by the comics code of the late 50s. But so in the 70s and 80s, the employment situation for women was basically non-existent. But Stan Lee did, in the early 1970s, try to attract women to work for him but not many of them lasted more than a few years. Yeah, it it didn't really work and even the hiring process was rather controversial.
4: He apparently had to sit sit the fellows down and be like, "Look, guys, we're gonna hire a couple of women. It's no big deal. We can still make fart jokes. It'll be and fine. The
0: major fear I do have no more
4: I'd... fart jokes,
0: <laughs> and that, that, and that
4: is my award-winning Stanley impression <laughs> as well. But you can see though as that's going on in the background, and then you also have the direct market system rising both in terms of production and consumption. It understandably becomes this highly gendered kind of boys' club kind of. Thing. Yeah. So while all this is going on, though, what's really interesting about comics in the 1960s is that it's basically basically like, well, whatever mainstream Marvel and DC, underground comics with an X is really where it's at.
0: Yeah, this, I mean, they really were sort of providing a counterculture answer to those big superhero comic behemoths. But that doesn't necessarily mean that women were super welcome in these underground groups. Yeah, and this is kind of the
4: unfortunate thing. Uh, I mean, because you have all of these alt newspapers, that are popping up, particularly, uh, of course, in New York, but particularly on the West Coast in places like San Francisco. And so you have our crumb and others starting to do these weird kinds of comics. And then you also have women doing weird kinds of comics. But the guys are like, ladies, we don't want your weird comics. <laughs> so um, nonetheless, though. Hillary L. Schut, who wrote Graphic Women, Life Narrative, and Contemporary Comics, talked about how during the underground comics revolution, this was the first time women were really using comics as a form of personal expression, which was especially facilitated by that kind of experimentation with form and style. But nonetheless, they were kind of having to do it on their own, because, I mean, the underground scene was... I mean, it was basically an underground boys club as well.
0: Yeah, we definitely need to get back to Trina Robbins, the cartoonist and now cartoonist historian. Um, In 1972, after the huge success of the first ever all-woman comic book anthology called It Ain't Me, Babe, Robbins and others ended up forming the Women's Comics Collective, which was based in San Francisco.
4: And we should note that that's women spelled W-I-M-M-E-N, And that's also comics with an X. And so ladies are doing it for themselves. Well, they have to. Yeah, but it is incredible to see how It Ain't Me, Babe immediately sold out. And so some of these smaller publishing companies start to pay attention. And some of these alt-weeklies start to pay attention. And so you also then, though, have women being like, well, not only do we make this stuff, but we can also publish this stuff ourselves so you have for instance Joyce Farmer and Lynn Shevely forming publishing company Nanny Goat Productions which was really started to give women more of a platform so not surprisingly along those lines Female sexuality is front and center in a number of these uh, underground comics penned by women, one of which has a fantastic rhyming title that I can't say on the podcast, but let's just say it's along the lines of breasts and vaginas.
0: Yeah, it yes. Talking about ladies. Yeah. Um, And other women, too, talk about ladies, um, were women, including Roberta Gregory and Mary Wings, who were lesbian comic book artists emerging during this time. And they pinned things like Dynamite Damsels and Come Out Comics, etc., etc. And apparently this was a really
4: important platform for lesbians at the time as well, to be able to tell their own stories, express their own sexuality and their own attractions. And this was something that Trina Robbins was talking about. And I can't remember which artist she was calling out, but it was a street woman who came up with an idea for a comic about lesbians and like, Oh, we needed to pick lesbians. I'll, I'll draw this. And then some lesbians were like, Hey, no, you're not going to tell our stories. And yeah. they were like, Oh yeah, absolutely not. Here you do it. Make <laughs> these. And so they did. And so with this women's profiles really begin to rise, particularly within these indie circles. And by the time we get to the 1980s, Going back to the mainstream for the moment, there are still very few women at DC and Marvel. But in the Sunday Funnies, you have Kathy White's Kathy comic. You also have Lynn Johnson with For Better or For Worse, which a number of Sminty fans called out as well. But really... Alt-weeklies were where it was at.
0: Yeah, because the whole attitude kind of around women in mainstream comic strips, not to even get into comic books, was that like, oh, well, why do we need more? Why do we need more women's voices? That's like a niche group, right? Women niche group. Well, and even
4: thinking about the women in the Sunday funnies, there's Kathy, who, I mean, you know, it's Kathy. Right. She's not exactly a a, rev- a a feminist revolutionary. And then, in even in like Lynn Johnson's For Better or For Worse, it's usually women in domestic roles. Or you have, say, Blondie, who's the wife, but she's she's sexy. She's she's busty.
0: Yeah. And I, I can't remember what source this was coming from. If I feel like it was in the Collector's Weekly article that we've cited, where someone, one of the cartoonists, was talking about how, you know, men's voices are considered neutral and they're just everyone's voice and so they can write about whatever. Their comic strip can be about men or people in general. It can be about whatever. Whereas women almost have to talk about being a woman and what that's like because they don't have voices. They don't have the luxury yet because there's so few of them. They don't have the luxury yet of just, oh, I'm a woman, but I happen to be drawing a cartoon strip about whatever. Yeah. That they almost have to make it so gendered. Well, and this
4: was where Alt Weekly's really came in to give more of a platform, a broader platform even than just, uh, these independent comics or zines at the time for women like Linda Berry, who I have a feeling a lot of uh, podcast listeners have been waiting for us to mention. Um, she was highly influential in the alt-comic world. I mean, just in general, not just because she was a woman. She was a massive pioneer. And her series Ernie Pooks comic, that's C-O-M-E-E-K, uh, was kind of her big breakout. She was also, fun fact, uh, Bessie's with Matt Groening of The Simpsons. And they were all mm-hmm. kind of, you know, drawing stuff at the same time. And he was like, hey, you should, uh, you should publish this Ernie Pook thing. She was like, alright, fine. And then it became huge. And she's still, she's still making comics today.
0: Well, you also had artists like Nicole Hollander who did the Sylvia comic and of course Alison Bechtel with Dykes to Watch Out for. And then Jennifer Camper with Rude Girls and Dangerous
4: Women. And those are just a few of the bigger names that were coming out of the alt and independent comic scene. Which leads us then into the 90s and 2000s when... I mean, we we've sort of hit the bottom when it comes to the depiction of women and men as well in more mainstream superhero kinds of comics because this is when you have these impossibly busty, sexy women and also these impossibly super muscular, ripped dudes who are dominating the pages of mainstream comics. And it's no wonder then... That starting in the early 90s, graphic novels bring so much relief to the whole thing. It's like, oh, wait, oh, we're back to storytelling. And oh, look, it's beautiful artwork as well. And we don't have these these intense pecs and breasts everywhere.
0: Yeah, I mean, the types of graphic novels that. You know, I think you're referring to, it's like, it's almost like walking into a quiet room. Yeah. (laughs) After being screamed at visually. I mean, I remember, I wish I could remember the name, but I remember one graphic novel that I read in high school that I borrowed from a friend that was all about like love and, and relationships and it was very like melancholy and sweet. Definitely no busty babes or rip dudes. featured in that at all. And no offense to any busty babes or ripped dudes listening. Oh, absolutely. We're purely talking about the ones that are on paper. Yes. Um, So in
4: 1992, it was a really big deal then that Mouse by Art Spiegelman wins the Pulitzer, and because of that, graphic novels all of a sudden get the attention from all of these publishers being like, Oh well, graphic novels, oh the Pulitzer Mao, Arts Beagleman, okay, this must be this must be important. So sort of on the heels of that, you have a lot of attention being paid to Marjane's Sartropi for Persepolis, um which was another favorite called out by a lot of Sminty fans. Um as well as Esther Pearl Watson's
0: Unlovable. And as we move back into the mainstream and into comic books, in 1996, Gail Simone's Birds of Prey launches at D.C. And Simone is responsible for coining the term that Kristen and I have mentioned before in the podcast, women in refrigerators. Kristen, you care to define that? Sure. Essentially, it's a... catchphrase
4: that Simone developed to highlight the disposability of so many female characters, even strong female characters in comic books. It's essentially like they would get to a point to where they were almost too strong for the plot, and they would sometimes literally and sometimes metaphorically be tossed into a refrigerator and done away with yeah make way for a new busty babe they're disposable so their death is just part of the plot but birds of prey was and is really cool because this was an all-female superhero group Mm -hmm. so women were kind of like yes finally and yeah they're busty sure they're busty but they were women crime fighters and it seemed like birds of prey started to mark a turning point in hey let's pay more attention to some ladies on the page
0: And then in the late 1990s, we see Japanese manga become a huge crossover hit in America. And I don't know that anime or manga's popularity has dwindled at all. No, but it probably opened up more girl readers and
4: consumers to animation, cartoons, illustration, etc. And we should probably go back at some point and devote an episode to manga. I know a number of fans... Uh, called out a number of female manga artists that they really love and we've gotten requests before to look at gender dynamics in manga and anime so that's something to look forward to later in the year um, but now moving more to today yes it's clear that Marvel and DC are, are attempting to get a little women friendlier but there's still plenty of progress to be made and there are also some women in the industry who
0: are are a little tired of the conversation. Yeah, Christina Strain, who's a colorist for Marvel Comics, uh, was basically saying that, um, you know, you guys are all creating this controversy. The media won't stop talking about the lack of women in the comics industry, and it just makes it worse for everybody. She said, right now there's this swell of ill will towards men in comics. And she says she gets it, but... Quote, it's furthering the stereotype that comics will be incredibly hostile towards women when that's just not at all the truth. Comics are about skill. If you're talented and you're able to work with a team to create awesome comics, you will get hired. And well, I totally see where uh, strain is coming from, and I know that it must be frustrating as a woman who is in an often criticized industry to continue to hear, oh, your industry is terrible for people like you. I mean, I see where she's coming from, but I still think, okay, well, if it were just about skill, would we not have more women in the industry in general? Yeah. Well, I mean, well, then there's the question of pipeline
4: of, well, maybe it's that perception of hostility that's stopping skilled and talented women for even going for it because they don't even want to have to possibly deal with that too. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't think it's, I mean, I don't think these issues are ever just as simple as, well, it's just skill, it's just talent, and that's it. I mean, it, clearly there are problems with perception in general. This was something that Terry Moore, who's a self-publisher, um, highlighted talking about this, um, acknowledging, yes, there has certainly been a lot more material out there aimed toward male readers, and unfortunately, he said, most of the public thinks comics are only about superheroes and action-oriented characters. Those of us who read them, though, know different. And I think that that's starting to become more and more of a theme as the digital world becomes, revolutionizes the comic book industry, obviously because print publishing in general is on the decline. And with the rise of digital, it seems like more women are coming to
0: comics
4: through that, whether that's by making them or by consuming them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can say that personally, I have never been, I mean, aside from chasing down Brenda Starr in the newspaper every day when the paper came to my parents' house when I was in middle school, I've never been a huge consumer of comics, comic strips, comic books, whatever. Um, But... In more recent years, over the past couple of years, I have loved a bunch of different digital comics, things that women are doing that wouldn't be considered traditional comic books or comic strips or things like that, but they're telling a really personal life story, like Allie Brosh with Hyperbole and a Half, where she's dealing with a very serious topic, which is depression, but she's illustrating it in such an adorable and accessible way that it makes it entertaining, and you sort of get a slice of someone's life in the process. Well, and interesting, too, to see how it's a
4: lot of these people making web comics and developing a digital following. Mm-hmm. And then they're coming into print. Right. It's kind of the reverse. Um, but notable, too, that going back to Ms. Marvel, for instance, the sales of that have been beyond expectation and especially on digital. Um, and there was a recent survey out of Comixology, which found a growing female comic readership on, you guessed it, digital platforms. So interesting to see how that's happening. And. There are, in addition to Hyperbole and a Half, there are so many women-penned webcomics out there to get to know and love online, such as Noelle Stevenson, who I mentioned earlier, with Nimona, Kate Beacon's Hark of Vagrant, which is hilarious, Spike Trotman's Templar Arizona, uh, Fiona Staples, who co-created with Brian K. Vaughn, uh, the Saga series, and then Kate Leth with Cater Die, and so many others. Like I said, if you head over to com, we're going to compile all of your suggestions with links to all of the webcomics or the comic book artist sites so that you can check them out and see what women are doing and drawing because the answer is so much. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think, Caroline, from going from Rose O'Neill in the late 1800s all the way up to, say, an alley Brosh today,
0: mm-hmm.
4: what, what, what do you think is the status of, of women in cartoons?
0: Well, I, I I do really think it's interesting to watch this uh, rise and fall that has seemed to happen over the past hundred or so years, because when O'Neill was popular uh, with her QP drawings... Um, it wasn't unusual or unexpected for girls and women to enjoy that type of art and that type of medium and, and collect them and color them in themselves. And then we hit this point in, in and after World War II where gender and gender divisions were so important and everything had to be black and white. And women were sort of pushed aside and like, Hey, this isn't a girly thing to do. This is all action and adventure and superheroes and fighting Hitler. This isn't for you to enjoy. And so it's really nice and interesting and reassuring to see that with the rise of the digital medium and more people relying on it, that... More women now not only have access to comics around the world, but they can create their own and give voice to something that other people can relate to. Like in the 60s, when we had that comics with an X revolution and women, uh, especially lesbian women, could finally say, here's my story. I want to tell you my story in my own words. Now you can have women like Allie Brosh telling her story. No, I'm going to tell you what depression is like. And. So many girls and women out there can say, oh, I feel that way, too. Well, and considering too
4: the delight and fandom that was sparked when we just asked folks for recommendations and their favorites, it also seems to be hearkening back to the time in the late 1800s and the early 1900s that Tina Robbins talked about or Trina Robbins, excuse me, talked about where you would have. I mean, where these women cartoonists were superstars Mm -hmm. and people would collect them in scrapbooks and no, we don't need them in scrapbooks anymore, but they're pinned all over Pinterest now. Right. Exactly. And they, these women are attracting, you know, their, their own fans. So I think there's obviously, and almost always still progress to be made,
0: but I think it's a pretty good time. Yeah. Anytime that women can share their stories in their own voices. I mean, it, it. It stinks that it always seems to have to be through the underground, you know, and through their own publishing means, and it's not through something like D.C., but I feel like even their strides are being made. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.
4: And it's not – and going back to to Sarah C. Anderson, not only stories, but also humor. Yeah, so many funny ladies.
1: Snag a Job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers – kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
2: This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank,
3: who believes some things in life should be boring.
2: Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee
3: just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at TNVacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. So now we want to hear
4: from you. Who are your favorites? Whose names did we Overlook. There were, again, there were so many suggestions that we got. We did not have time to read out every single one. Um, so if you are a fan or a creator, we would love to hear from you. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I've got a letter here from Lori about our episode on Night Shift Moms. She says, I've been working the night shift for over 28 years. I started out doing it when I was just 19, thinking that it would be a fun adventure, and it really was. I work in emergency rooms as a respiratory care practitioner. After I got married to my high school sweetheart at 23, I continued the job because it also paid well, and we had only one car and a large college debt. So I would drive to work at night and pass the car keys to my husband in the morning so he could go to college. Then at 25, I had my first child and we couldn't afford childcare, so I continued the night shift and passed the keys and the baby with each shift change. I felt that my husband got the better deal there. He just had to feed the baby and put him into bed at night, but when I got home, I was only napping when he napped and then back to work again. But when the second child came along two years later, I was averaging about three hours of sleep a day, but felt like the women you mentioned in your program that at least my My babies saw me during the day, and we never had to deal with sitters and childcare issues. Over the years, something ended up happening to me as well. My circadian rhythm moved. I was now hardwired to being up at night. I discussed this with my physician, and she felt that I shouldn't flip my schedule back and forth, as that may cause more harm to my system. So to this day, I work seven on, seven off, and I don't flip my clock back to the day shift when I'm off. I get a lot done at night, catch up on the laundry and other quiet housework and grocery shopping is a dream. I agree that working the night shift has some disadvantages. I did have a cancer scare when I was 29 of the thyroid variety, but it was caught early and I'm fine now. Also, my husband has never liked that I work the night shift. He understands this, but he misses me and I miss him too. We've been married 24 years and I kind of believe that having to be away from him may, for us, have strengthened our relationship. I always have interesting things to talk to him about on my week off and we do get every other week to hang out together and if there's something special we want to do, I will get up early to accommodate him. For me, I don't know any different. My earliest memories are of being up at night. Maybe I'm one of those people. The hardest thing for me, and I'm sure you touched on this, was that it's hard to have friends when you work the night shift. I have a few, but it seems like I rarely see them because of my schedule. Just thought you'd like to hear from someone who's done this all her life, and even with all the hardships it may have caused, sleepless days and a grumpy husband, I still feel that what I did has been the best thing I could have done for my family. I think I'll always be a
0: night bird. So thanks, Lori. Well, I have a letter here from Jana. Uh, she says, My mom has been a nurse for 25 years and has worked both day and night shifts in that time. She does 12-hour shifts and commutes about an hour each way, so I did not get a lot of time with her growing up. It was especially hard during my teen years when she was working almost exclusively night shifts. A mix of my tired mother and teenage hormonal drama was a bit of a recipe for disaster. When it came to sleepovers, everyone else could have them but me, the horror. Now that I'm in my mid-20s, I see the sacrifices that she made for me and my dad. She worked so hard to be the best provider and mom she could be. I'm so thankful for her dedication. She truly taught me what it means to work hard and to earn what you get. Thanks for your salute to the unsung heroes who work while we sleep. So thank you, Jennifer, writing in. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us.
4: MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can learn more about women and the history of cartooning, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect.
3: Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect.
1: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway.